I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. This episode is a preseason chat with U.S. Ski Team head coach Matt Whitcomb following the team camp in Park City. We discuss a variety of topics, including a large section focused on World Cup season planning and preparations for the upcoming Beijing Olympics in February. Let's get into the conversation. Here's Matt. Yeah, so I'm hoping uh, to get us started that you can kind of give a, a recap of the team camp in Soldier Hollow a couple weeks ago. It seemed like there was a pretty big group of athletes outside of just the USC team members. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about the group that was there and what the energy was like at that camp. Yeah, great. I'd love to. Thank you for the chance to talk about it, Rachel. Um, we finished the camp up about a week ago. Uh, we we were there for two weeks and we had some wild weather. We had uh, changing trail conditions. Park City has enough clay in it so that if it uh, rains or snows, just an easy run becomes a challenging thing to figure out where where to do it, um, much less biking like the coaches like to do. So that was tricky, and uh, athletes were great. We had to, in the week two, we had to run through a whole bunch of training plan modifications to get in the key workouts that we wanted so that there wasn't, you know, snow and slippery track conditions down at Soldier Hollow. But, you know, it's good practice for the world we are about to enter um, this winter, as we all know from last season, it's, it's important to be adaptive and park city was, if nothing more, it was good training for that. But, um, the actual physical training was a huge success, uh, too. So one of the, I think one of the important things about park city for our team is this is a chance to bring the best club athletes, including the national league group, the national training group, uh, together with the national team. Um, and really to break down kind of team barriers. So what we do is we opened up all speed and interval and race sessions to the top kind of non-national team athletes. Um, and, and that gave us, you know, a, a bunch of advantages. One, we, for our sprint day, we had 60 athletes in that event. It was super competitive. It was a really fun day. It was, um, chaotic <laughs> visually, but athletes, I think we're all really excited about it. And it was very stimulating to be a coach on that day. But the whole idea of this camp is that at the end of the day, you know, if we want to improve, we have to look beyond our own programs. I really don't believe that any one club or club coach can do it alone. And, and really our team is no exception there. So, um, you know, I'm deeply passionate about finding ways to push the U.S. ski team for the national team, but um, I think one of the things that I can facilitate in this position as head coach is, is to help athletes and coaches really just, regardless of what team they are on, experience the concept of being a part of the U.S. skiing community, and, and that's really the team that matters most. It's not about uh, so much what club you're on or whether or not you're on or off the national team, but um, I think we've, we've come a long ways. You know, before before Pete Bordenberg took over, and I guess it was 2006, we used to call the U.S. ski team the um, what was it? It was the elite band of mystery men. And now that's a little bit different. Uh, for one, we have a women's team, and thanks to Pete for that. And but really, whether an athlete succeeds at World Juniors or at the Olympics, I think it's really a win 
for the U.S. and and for all the athletes and coaches that have worked together. So that's a that's a cool part of Park City for me. Um, you can stop me at any point. Um, <laughs> <Are> <laughs> we, there, we had. Go ahead, Rachel. Sorry. I I was going to ask. Are there you know specific moments, um, whether that's related to training or otherwise, that kind of stand out to you from that? Yeah, you know, one of one of uh, we we go to Park City in large part because of the altitude. Um, I think that's a big draw for a lot of these club athletes too. It's an important piece of this camp um, because Soldier Hollow, particularly for this season, it's approximately the same ele- elevation as Jianjiaku, which is the venue we'll be competing at in the Beijing Olympics this this winter. Um, and And really, I think this is... Uh, mistaken sometimes, but an athlete isn't really just good or bad at racing at altitude. Um, there's so much to it that's a learnable skill. And so one, f- one uh, I guess, session that we, we focus on at our camps um, this year and last year um, is something that we've been calling the U.S. Pace Project. And the idea is that it's a workout that the national team can do, but it's also something that clubs can participate in. And we've had a lot of clubs clubs um, participate and share their experience with us. So that's been fun. But basically, um, instead of doing intensity based on time, uh, we do these intervals based on 5K laps. Uh, and 5K is basically, you know, as you know, the building block of every distance race. Um, and I guess in repeating the same 5K loops, um, athletes, athletes, they can go ahead and try different tactics, uh, make tweaks to their technique, they can modify their pacing as a way of learning the new skill of training and racing at altitude. So um, there's a lot of learning that happens when you do intensity based on distance. And and my measure is basically at the end of the session, I tend to witness much more internal athlete discussion about things they tried than I do on sort of normal intensity sessions. It's not by any means a revolution, but it's been a fun uh, fun session for us to, to share. Uh, so that, that really jumps out to me. We had a couple great races too. you know, 60 people in a sprint race is bigger than some super tour. So, uh, it's, uh, we have, there's a lot of special things happening right now in the U S. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about the gender balance in coaches at the camp. Um, so I think there were three women and, and four men coaching at the camp, um, which is a, really big step forward in terms of just the presence of women coaches at that top level of sport. Um, can you talk about that in terms of, you know, just the presence of women at these camps historically, and then will there be more female coach representation on the world cup and at the Olympics this season? Yes. Awesome question. And a super important topic to me. Um, and for our organization, we, we do have seven coaches, Um, And in 2006, when I first joined the team, we also had seven coaches, but they were all men. We had four World Cup coaches. We had two development coaches. Um, I was one of them. And then we had a strength coach. And now we um, still have roughly the same breakdown with uh, two development staff coaches, uh, four World Cup coaches, and and, uh, a strength coach. But three of them are women. And that's something we have been uh, trying hard to balance and are pretty proud that we've been able to. But at the end of the day, it's, (laughs) 
we are, while that may have been a goal of ours, uh, what we do is we hire the best possible people that apply for these jobs. And uh, it just happens right now that three of them were women and they are truly kicking ass. So pretty, pretty excited about that. But, you know, the whole organization has been moving in that direction, too. Uh, most notably the hiring of Sophie, Sophie um, Goldschmidt, uh, who I had a chance to meet uh, last week in Park City. Actually, our whole team met her. But um, a huge number of executive positions at the ski team are held by women. So the company in many ways is, is run by women. It's, uh, I'm pretty proud of that. What kind of feedback have you received from athletes about that? Um, very positive. Yeah, actually, we, uh, you know, as an example of, of how we are trying to respond um, to the athlete um, experience, uh, we last year we had Kate Johnson, formerly Kate Barton, as our development coach. And we were able to bring her along as a bit of a training sort of, you know, accelerate her coaching experience we bring her along to some races in period one and then um, later in the season two we brought her to world championships um, but the athletes liked having her around so much that we just brought her up to the world cup this year so um, now she's a uh, now she's our head d team coach and we'll be on the world cup uh, almost full-time this winter um since you mentioned Sophie Goldschmidt, do you want to talk about, um, you know, uh, U.S. Ski and Snowboard CEO Tiger Shaw announced in the spring that he would be stepping down after the Olympic season, um, and Sophie Goldschmidt will be moving into her into his roles. Um, and she seems like she's got just a, a wealth of experience and knowledge in that realm of um, sport governing bodies, um, just from World Surf League to Women's Tennis Association to the NBA. Um, can you, you mentioned that the team invited her over for dinner at that camp. Um, can you share more about that? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I, I first want to add that um, while I am really excited about uh, having Sophie running the organization, um, I am incredibly grateful to Tiger Shaw. Um, he has been a huge supporter of our program one of the people that has made one of the largest dif uh, differences, I think, to our program in terms of support. Um, but he's not just supporting us financially. He's coming to a half a dozen World Cups over the course of his seven years with the team. You know, he truly, <laughs> truly invested himself in our program. And uh, it, it goes without saying that we're going to miss him. I, I don't know what uh, precipitated this transition, but um, I'm happy, uh, to hear that he's got this great job coming up. Um, I was surprised to see him leaving before the games, but, uh, yeah, whoever, whoever lands this guy at any point, um, in the next couple of decades is going to be incredibly lucky. Um, uh, but so, uh, big thanks and shout out to Tiger, uh, for Sophie, we just lucked out on our last night in park city she was coming in uh, in preparation for her first day on the job. And so we got uh, her first day on the job, Eve, and she joined us for dinner. And then we had Kate Johnson, uh, our D-team coach, leading our uh, end of camp debrief meeting, which is, which is something that we like to do 
um, in big ways and small ways throughout the whole year. You know, we'll, we'll run small debriefs after a race at dinner, um, after a camp, we might run something like this a couple of times. They can be two, two plus hour meetings, or they can be five minutes long, but Kate led a great debrief with the team where we answer two questions. What, what are we happy with about the camp? What did we do well? And, uh, what could we have done a little bit better or a lot better? And, and so it gets personal, you know, dives right into, uh, successes, but also mistakes. And you have your brand new boss right there. And, uh, I was sitting next to her, um, towards the back of the room. And I was a little disappointed that she was on her phone the whole time <laughs> and, uh, thinking that she's just going to be so strapped with the magnitude of this job. Uh, but then, uh, at the end of the meeting, uh, she showed me her notes. <laughs> she was just taking notes from the whole meeting and gave this uh, very inspiring speech at the end. And it's just so immediately clear that um, she's a wonderful person. And uh, I'm not one who thinks that we have to have somebody that knows no sports. Um, we have to have a great person who's invested in our program at the helm of the organization. And I believe that's what we have. So I'm really excited for uh, what lies ahead for Sophie. Um, since the camp, you've, you have been kind of traveling around and um, kind of combination of personal trips, um, but also seeing some additional programs and clubs over the last few weeks. Do you want to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, 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 I, I do. I'm on quite a road trip, you know, on my, <laughs> I was uh, about to point my car east to Vermont from Utah. I, I drove out there because I like a good road trip. Um, you know, you don't have to focus so much on how long the roads are. It's just, uh, just point it and go. And, and, and you can get to some amazing places in the U S just in the, it, it, with, with, uh, using the highways. So, uh, I really enjoy that. And after the camp, I did a quick little visit with my sister. It's like, ah, um, got an invite to join a sun Valley practice. So I went and did that. And then I, um, drove down to, uh, Patty Caldwell's wedding, which was this wonderful outdoor event in, in Denver and then got an invite to the Aspen program. And so I drove out and did that. And then, uh, you know, on my way home from Aspen, uh, back to Vermont, I decided to circle through Oregon. So, uh, this afternoon I'm going to join, uh, Dylan Watts who invited me to join their, uh, MBSEF program here in Bend. So I'm pretty excited about that. It's a uh, very energizing for me, but it's also a unique lens that I don't get to look through very often to go from one club to the next to the next um, with just a few days separating each just to, uh, for me, it's a great learning experience. Um, I can make tweaks to my own coaching styles because I get to watch some of these incredible coaches coach their great programs, but I also get to learn the names of a lot of these athletes that are just behind the scenes, putting in so much work and, uh, and having a great time doing it. So it's been really encouraging these last few days and I'm excited for this afternoon. Um, going back to the USB team, um, it, it kind of seems like there's a little bit of a changing of the guard happening right now in terms of, um, if we look at the 2018 Olympic team, uh, I think it's, it's roughly like a quarter of those athletes, um, are still on the USB team or, or kind of pursuing that, um, the 2022 Olympics. Um, whereas there was a lot more crossover between 2014 and 2018, um, and, Looking at the USQ team, it almost feels like Haley Swerble and Julie, Julia Curran are, are, are veterans now, but they're 23 and 24. Um, 
Yeah, they're middle-aged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so can you talk about this in terms of just team dynamics and, and leadership um, and, you know, whether there's a difference in season planning from your end, given that some of the top athletes, um, you know, thinking maybe Gus Schumacher, who has a lot less World Cup experience than Jesse, um, and may, maybe that adds some variable. Yeah, there are certainly, we are certainly going through some big changes and there seems to be a, a significant generational shift. The average age on our team, though I don't know what it is, uh, wouldn't be hard to figure out, but it has uh, significantly dropped. Um, I'm not really one who believes, or I should say uh, our team of coaches are not coaches who believe in really having team captains um, or these appointed leaders. And I, I think the, the, the best reason for avoiding that sort of captain situation is that people who do have some leadership potential, maybe perhaps not as a captain, um, they get to hide in the shadow of the captain. And, and so then when you have a captain retire at the end of a long, great career, um, there's some big adjustments that happen. Um, but, but something I think, um, and anybody that knows Burke Mountain Academy, one of their mottos is all leaders, no leaders. You know, there are no appointed leaders, but everybody is expected to lead in some way. And I think um, I probably dragged a little bit of that along, that philosophy along with me. Um, but what happens is when you retire three athletes in their 30s, like Sophie Caldwell, Hamilton, Simi Hamilton, and Sadie Bjornsson last year, it's not a traumatizing event for the team because we have already had um, everyone else on the team also take playing some role in driving the bus. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a trap. And, and I, I should mention that we are not expecting the same sort of leadership and team contribution from every athlete. It's not a, it's not a really a blanket policy regarding leadership that we have. But what we do expect, and we have talked about this with the team, is that everybody contributes something to the team in their own way. And, and the trap is that you could uh, mistakenly require someone who is not comfortable in these public um, leadership roles doing something that is outside of what their character is comfortable doing. And so... Um, what for one person might be a very small contribution could be a very significant, stressful contribution for another. And so, so we just try and ask everybody to figure out what their role is on the team and we can help them with that. But I do like that Burke Mountain Academy philosophy of all leaders, no leaders. I, I believe I'm saying that right. So that's been, that's, that's made our transition from having some older um, athletes in their thirties these seasoned veterans, uh, it's made our transition away from them or, or when they retire, less, less traumatic. Okay. On the men's team, um, we had a, a reader submit a question about the men's relay performance in 2018, um, where, you know, they, they were the last overall and um, the, the reader was pointing out that individual legs were also some of the slowest in the field. Um, without dwelling too much on that, um, I feel like now we're looking at a men's team who has international success at the relay at the junior level. 
Um, and we're also seeing those men training together in Alaska this summer. Um, a lot of them are based in Alaska, but from some flying in from outside of Alaska. Um, and we don't want to just lay pressure on these young men, but um, can you talk about this group in terms of just that idea of cohesion and, and outlook for the men's program with this next generation that's coming up? Yes. Um, and I, I will add, it's something that has kept me, <laughs> I, I'm as motivated in my, in my job with the ski team as I've ever been. And I think, uh, this is one of the reasons for that, but, um, yeah, first I want to give some credit to some of our veterans because, uh, you have guys like Scott Patterson and Simi Hamilton, um, Kevin Bolger, who, who assumed some pretty important leadership roles, last season. But then uh, you also have this new crop of younger fellows who are, <laughs> you know, so energetic, so focused, um, and are exhibiting such um, admirable levels of humility. You know, they, <laughs> they first make fun of their sel themselves before making fun of others. It's just a very light environment. Um, we, for uh, I've been with the team for 15 years, and, and it was not until last year that I felt like our entire men's team, from end to end, was working together. And I, that sounds um, like a disturbing statistic, We, but uh, we would always have these small or medium-sized pods that work together very well and was very productive. But you know, when you have pods, you have a polarizing, um, something polarizing is happening within the team. You know, it's, it's really difficult. I think being an athlete in a competitive sport, particularly when your teammates are people whom you're competing against. And for some reason, uh, we have been able to transcend that in this last season. Last year was, like I said, the first season where I really felt like from end to end, we were working together and um, was, you know, was that a coaching failure? Um, I will definitely own that. I think it was and, and do hold myself responsible for that. Um, but it's tough. It's tough working with people. It's tough putting people together and just expecting them to believe in one another. It's a, sometimes it has to do with the cards you're dealt. Um, but I think we are just more experienced as coaches now and the athletes are also learning the importance of working together. I always remember this uh, Julius Bledgen award winner um, from about 10 years ago. Was just, <laughs> I wish I could remember his name. I remember his quote though, this old man receiving this award. And he just said this one thing. He said, you know, no one of us is as strong as all of us. And that is a concept that for many years, I, I think the women's team understood and they didn't all like each other. You know, that's, that's okay. But they were all great teammates to one another. They all respected one another. And so, you know, you've probably heard this from athletes on our team or coaches, but we, we don't expect everyone to be friends, but we do expect everyone to be good teammates to one another. And, you know, you are, able to then use each other as fuel, but you are also <laughs> required to be fuel for your teammates. And we have that going right now. 
it's amazing. And it's, it's so fun to watch. It's so motivating as a coach. And I'm just really proud of this group of guys because um, they're owning this and this is, this is work that they've put in and it's going to pay off in results. And it already has, you saw it last season. I, I should throw in there too, that uh, our women's team uh, right now, while I think we uh, went through uh, maybe a little bit of struggle when we did in fact lose some, some strong leaders all at once um, <laughs> to sort of uh, to check what I was saying before. It's, it's not exactly a per- perfect system when, when you lose some of these veterans, um, but beginning and bend, you know, I feel like I started seeing a team that is again, operating as well as they have ever operated. And this is something that uh, they are leading. This is not something that a coach is doing well. It's, it's uh, happening from within the team. So very satisfying to watch. And it's going to be, uh, it's gonna be dangerous for anybody racing against them. I want to ask you about altitude training camps um, this season. You mentioned that, you know, Park City is ideal. One of the reasons Park City was ideal is just that similarity in, in um, elevation to the Olympic venue. Um, in terms of looking at the season ahead, um, kind of the when, where, and why in that lead up to Beijing, um, which I think is around 1,700 meters, um, and, and whether you can kind of maybe comment on the, the idea of kind of this, you know, Alex Hutchinson kind of wrote, has written about responders and non-responders to altitude and just how, how all those puzzle pieces get considered um, in this season. Yeah, that's a great question. Wow, there's a lot in there. Um, I'm going to start with just something that I remember, the Alex Hutchinson um, non-responders versus uh, responders, I think it is more appropriately looked at as slow responders and responders. Sure. And so everybody, um, not correcting you so much as correcting what I've thought all these years, but um, everybody will respond to altitude. It's just if you submit everyone to the same altitude and training regimen in a pre-camp before a championships, um, some will thrive and some will burn out. And so it really needs to be an individual approach. Uh, we just had a handful of athletes um, this September go through some testing in Colorado Springs to assess uh, the different responses they have to different intensities at different altitudes. And so we basically know with these athletes, when their body starts to respond productively, to an altitude stimulus and when, at what point do they start to respond um, unproductively? At what point does the altitude become a stress so significant that uh, it's gonna slow them down if we're not very careful with the training? So it's definitely uh, been a huge area of focus for our program and and we're pretty excited this year. We're changing things up. I I think, uh, you know, there's that, (laughs) that Japanese business model that I, love reading about all the time kaizen i think and and you know it's basically says as soon as you're successful change and and we've had some success with some altitude camps in sizer all Italy. we've had success in davos switzerland um both at considerably different elevations but both higher and we just felt like we needed something fresh this year going into the beijing olympics and which is an altitude event so we're We've rented this giant home in Lavigno, Italy, 
it's actually American owned, which is exciting. And we have an adjacent apartment for staff. So we're not overcrowding the home, but essentially we'll have the entire Olympic team. Uh, we can talk a little bit in, in a while about how big that team is looking to be. Uh, we'll have a couple body workers, an MT and a physical therapist. Uh, we'll have a wax tech, three coaches and a chef. So the idea is to provide the best environment for uh, good training stimulus, for great recovery, but also we will try and produce that vibe requisite to succeed at the Olympics. And so, you know, a vibe that really helps us process the stresses that will invariably be infiltrating our lives in the, in the couple of weeks before. But, you know, when you're living under one roof with people that you know are undergoing the same thing, the same sorts of stresses, I think it can be comforting. And uh, we're really looking forward to it. So. And is that multiple camps or is that one camp or what does that look Yeah, like? that will be just one camp. It's, it's between 12 and 15 days long, depending on when uh, a, an athlete is scheduled to depart for Beijing. We will send those doing the skiathlon a few days early and those starting in the sprint a few days later. And so we'll have coaches stick around uh, in Livigno, Italy for a little bit longer with, with some of the athletes that will have a later departure. Um, but So that's our one scheduled altitude camp prior to the events, but this will not be the first time at altitude. This will be putting on the finishing touches to – you know, that whole process of erythropoiesis that we are looking for. Um, we will have spent uh, 10 days in period one at Davos, which is about 5,500 feet. Um, and we'll be dipping in and out of altitude throughout period two uh, before this camp even starts. So we will be carrying into this camp some residual altitude acclimation to make this camp uh, a little more seamless in terms of our adjustment to the environment. Can you talk a little bit about selection and quotas when it comes to naming that Olympic team? Yeah, sure. So um, first of all, our selection criteria is posted on the U S ski and snowboard website. You just go under sports programs, cross country, and then selections, um, I just double checked it this morning to make sure it is updated and there, and it has been for a while. So um, it's a fairly simple process that anybody can read through. There are basically four, four selection criteria. And uh, the first is a top eight in period one or during the tour to ski in an event in an, an individual event that will be held at the Olympics. So 1015 classic freestyle sprint and skiathlon. I think those are the three. Um, so if an athlete uh, gets a top eight in one of those in, in world cup prior to the event, prior to the Olympics, um, they will qualify. Um, second criteria, we go to discretion. Um and there are, you know, we could, you can read the criteria to see why exactly we do that. That's sort of a long, the why is pretty lengthy. Um, third, we go to top 50 on World Cup sprint or distance lists. And so to get into the top 50, an athlete must be scoring points in the top 30. 
in World Cups. And generally just scoring, uh, you know, one point, getting one 30th and a 29th is probably unlikely to put you into the top 50. But, um, and lastly, we go to what is called our domestic, or it's not called our domestic, it's called our, our U.S. championship points lists, which includes super tours um, during period one and concluding with national U.S. championships. And, and uh, that is where we will fill the balance of the team that does not qualify uh, through these international or discretionary uh, points. Can you talk a little bit about um, the impact of COVID on head-to-head racing domestically last season? Um, I think that's re- reflected in that selection criteria. Um, yeah, but maybe just it, how, it is. how that differs this year from other years. Yeah, well, we hope it differs. Um, you know, there's still a there's still a full blown pandemic, right. um, and and I just received my booster because there is. So we are we are treating our travels as as such, but. Um, you'll notice in the criteria that fist points um, have this special amendment to them where um, we are using fist points all the way back to, I think, July of 2019. You'll have to double check me on that one. But uh, because there were some, uh, you know, difference in, differences in, in uh, the amounts of races people could get to last season. And so we, uh, I believe that's a, a more fair way of doing this. It's not a perfect world by any means, but, uh, we are simply fortunate to be able to compete in sports. So we'll take what we can get. Can you also, um, talk about this year's quotas and just the decisions that go into whether or not to fill those quotas? Yeah, sure. Um, the maximum team size for any national team is 16. So eight men and eight women. And we know that we have already qualified, uh, eight women or at least we've qualified for eight quota spots. So we will be taking eight women to the Olympics. Um, currently, we believe for the men's team, we are at either five or six. Uh, we think we have currently qualified for five spots, which is um, a considerably smaller number than we've taken in the past. Um, we believe there's a good chance for six and I'm very hopeful and really crossing my fingers that uh, enough nations turn down their quota spots come the selection criteria application in mid to late January that we re- we receive that seventh spot. But um, that's really not something we can count on right now. So it's my guess is five, six or seven for men. Um, I want to ask about season planning in the lead up to the Olympics um, in terms of what are some of the considerations in deciding whether an athlete is going to do the tour de ski, which is, you know, roughly a month or six weeks in advance of the Olympics. Um, Yeah. And then is there a balance between peaking for the Olympics and kind of gaining valuable World Cup experience, meaning you know, more uninterrupted training with less racing for some versus others who might benefit from the experience of racing um, more often at the expense of that maybe less consistent training. Um, I can see kind of in sprinting how um, just racing in maybe some leaner fields at points during this World Cup season, um, maybe having the opportunity to get further through the rounds could be really valuable for a long-term development perspective. Um yeah, just 
what does that look like in terms of making those decisions with different athletes? Yeah, well, you know, there there's a team really built around every athlete, which uh, includes, uh, I'm going to say most importantly, um, the athlete themselves. Uh, they They should really be the head coach of their whole career and then uh, their club coach and their national team coaches are kind of their assistants, but um, we're, we are a team around them ready to help them build their individual plan that works best for them. We don't tell the whole national team that, you know, if you have to, uh, you have to do every world cup that you qualify for. Um, that's going to be a very different thing. You see Jesse Diggins over the course of period one, and even into the beginnings of the tour to ski some years racing into race form. She's in great shape right now, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean she's super fast right now. Um, and she knows, uh, and, and as do all of her fans that it tends to be, even if she's winning a race um, somewhere in period one, it tends to be that Jesse races herself into race fitness. And so someone like that, uh, we look to the tour to ski as being a huge asset. Uh, other people that um, seem to have more of a finite number of races in their system per year or a certain number that they're targeting prior to their championship events, we, we have to be a little bit careful. Um, and there's some good flexibility with the tour to ski. If an athlete is selected for the tour from this 15 person selection committee that we use for world cup selection, then they have some liberties within and flexibilities within even that. They're not just stuck with starting and completing the tour um, and doing all six stages this year. They can drop out at any point. And we have exit points uh, set up for them in case anybody gets sick or is only wanting to do one, two, or three, or four races where they can then bail out to our post-tour camp in Seefeld, Austria. We're going to do something a little different this year. We often go to Sizeralm at about 7,000 feet. Um, and while it doesn't sound super smart to go uh, to altitude right after the tour to ski, for some reason, that seems to work for a lot of people on our team. And so I think it just uh, has something to do with the amount of rest that they take after the tour. And uh, they tend to come out of that camp going fast, but we want to play a little bit more conservatively this year. So we're going to we'll go a little bit lower between the three and 4,000 foot mark and Seefeld. Um, we'll position a chef in some nice lodging there so that we can try to simulate as many sort of home cooked environments as we can throughout the season. Because as, as you know, most of our lives as, as world cup, racers and coaches uh, consists of going to three meals a day in a restaurant. And that can be, that can be a little tough. Does the potential to score points um, and maybe improve your rank or your fist points factor into those conversations at all? In, in conversations of who starts the tour? Yeah. And just, you know, choosing to sit out a world cup um, or not. Yeah, that's really, that's really a decision that needs to be up to the athlete. Um, you know, for instance, if, if someone is chasing a, a cup or an overall globe, um, they're not going to want to sit out too many, too many races. They're going to want to take more chances than an athlete on a season where they're really targeting specific events. 
And in an Olympic season, there are sort of two questions. One is, what do I have to do to make this team? And then two, what do I have to do to compete well at the games? And, and I think we tend to see people operate a bit more conservatively. Uh, we will have athletes uh, coming home to take some, take some rest after, say, Davos. Um, I don't want to exactly disclose who is doing what yet because programs can change. Uh, but but there, if you have 15 athletes uh, traveling around in period one, we we will have 15 different programs. Sure. Um, one more on the the topic of the Olympics. Um, you know, thinking back to the Summer Games in Tokyo, some of the things I remember most, apart from you know, there there were many outstanding performances, but um, I'm I think about uh, the British diver Tom Daly knitting. Um, yeah. Which was a you know he said it was kind of a mindfulness practice and something he does to keep keep sane and in a good headspace throughout um, those competitions, and then also of course you know Simone Biles pulling out of the games to take care of her own Olympic health or her own health, uh, mental health during the Olympics. Um, in in the interview you did with Jason in, in April 2020, you guys talked a fair amount about kind of monitoring for um, Red S, relative energy deficiency in sport, in the light of that season um, where Ingvild Osberg and uh, Frida Carlson had missed part of the season. And you said something along the lines of um, how, as a coach, it's, it's important for you to understand where the limits of your guidance are in terms of, you know, when when you need to defer to an expert and provide the athlete with, with resources and experts in mental health or nutrition. Um, I was listening to an interview with Simone Biles this morning, and she was talking about how people can't see mental health kind of injuries, um, so to speak, in the same way as they maybe see a, a broken leg um, and they're not able to understand what somebody is going through as a result. Um, and these, you know, these struggles could be really insidious and athletes might want to hide or kind of ignore what's going on. So, you know, when you're on the road in the heat of the World Cup season and, and you're, you're building into the Olympics, um, especially with, you know, a fairly young crop of athletes. Um, are there things that you're looking for with your athletes to kind of keep an eye on how they're holding up, you know, both physically and mentally? And, and what are some of the efforts you make to ensure that they're, they're feeling supported and, and getting the help that they need consistently through that? Yeah, that's, um, that's it. That's the, that's all you, that's all you have to ask. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that's an awesome question. And for, honestly, Rachel, it's, probably my favorite topic as a coach. Um, and I would guess that any good coach, not even a great coach, but any good coach who uh, watched the Olympics and watched what Simone Biles went through, um, my guess is that they're relatively unaffected by it. Um, and what I mean by that is that it did not take watching Simone Biles um, have a perfectly acceptable um, and yet heartbreaking meltdown at the Olympics um, to change our coaching style. Any good coach has been from the beginning paying attention to athlete and staff health. And uh, just want to, <laughs> just want to sort of point that out. Um, I, I think there were a lot of lessons that uh, people learned by watching that, but you know, America is such a, 
jump on the latest thing. And it seems like mental health has been that for the last several years, and in particular when, it, when we see a public figure meltdown. But <laughs> any coach that's paying attention, um, in some capacity, they have witnessed similar things happen on their team, uh, maybe with a staff member, maybe with an athlete. You know, meltdowns happen. And uh, <laughs> we've been paying attention to mental health since I think we began coaching. Uh, we have, in the last several years, tried to figure out how to put a system to it so that we are not just operating based on judgment and conversations with athletes or staff members to see how people are doing. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, we brought up the topic of Red S in, in the interview with Jason last year or the year before. And um, that's been something that we've been focused on since uh, naming a women's team in 2006. Um, and what we <laughs> were mistaken with is that it's not a, an issue uh, limited to women. Um, this is an issue. This is a human issue. So uh, it tends to affect athletes quite a bit who are involved in endurance sports, um, simply not getting enough food to fuel their, their training. Um, but it is uh, very clear to me now after talking with a number of veterans uh, who have retired both on our team and off of our team um, about their experiences. And some of them who have struggled have been uh, men. So that's been uh, a big learning experience for me over the last 15 years. What we've wanted to do uh, is be able to answer the question, um, do you have a limit or a mechanism where, for lack of a better reason or, or phrase, do you have a way to shut somebody down or to catch them, I think is a better way to put them, to put it or to help them if an athlete goes too far uh, into red S? or uh, perhaps an eating disorder or something along those lines. And uh, we have always worked with a dietitian um, very closely, but uh, until this last season, we didn't have a real system for it. Um, it was more based on the expert working with the athlete. And if the two of them felt like, uh, particularly if the expert felt like, there were changes that needed to be made. Then, then we made those changes, but it was uh, it, it was a little bit discombobulated. So, we uh, launched a program this spring in Bend called the Wellness Passport, the Athlete Wellness Passport. And um, this is not just about eating disorders or Red S, which is uh, stands for Relative Energy Energy Deficiency in Sport. So it's um, it includes mental health, bone density, um, and a, a variety of uh, categories. So I think in the Athlete Wellness Passport, there are eight categories, um, which include things like uh, results from a blood test, um, whether an athlete is uh, has a regular cycle or is amenorrheic, um, bone density scan results, uh, mental wellness questionnaire, um, and several others that are just not coming to the top of my head right now. Um, I could I could find that for you if you'd like to see it. And essentially, what happens is if an athlete is flagged in one or two of those categories, it'll it'll stimulate a conversation with an expert. 
And it may be a dietitian, it may be a sports or clinical psychologist, um, whatever is appropriate based on the category that was flagged. If three or four of those categories of the eight are flagged, that will trigger um, some changes to the program. That may include not racing, that may include um, a reduction in training hours, it will certainly or could include um, more work with a psychologist or with a dietitian. And so essentially what this wellness passport for the athletes is, is a, it's a safety net. We're not looking to create an obstacle for them. We are looking first to create a way to help them because uh, as we said in our meeting in Bend, um, you know, if there's one thing that humans have in common, it's that we struggle. And, and there's, you can take some security in that because we, you know, you sort of look around the room at your teammates and, and staff and you realize that, wow, that, that is true. And we, we get so um, engrossed in our own struggles. We forget we're not the only person on the team or on the planet who is struggling. And this is meant to make our resources to help mitigate those struggles so clear and present and in front of all of us so that they can actually be used. Um, turning the question to yourself a little bit, um, you know, you, you've been coaching at this level. I think you said you joined the U.S. ski team in, in 2006 um, and you've been traveling the World Cup circuit throughout the winter. Um, in terms of well-being, how do you take care of your own mental, physical, emotional well-being to, um, yeah, just, you know, stay happy and well throughout the season? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Thanks for thanks for asking because it's often something that uh, we we coaches probably we male coaches, but I don't know, maybe that's not appropriate to say. But we we often uh, try to prove our salt through just hard work, not not smart work. Um, it seems to be more of like a male thing to 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 get ourselves into physical trouble because we've worked too hard and basically been idiots. Um, and I have definitely done that and have to thank, um, I think Keegan Randall and Holly Brooks, you know, two of, two of our, uh, uh, notable skiers from the past that, that pulled me aside one winter. And, and I think individually, I don't remember exactly how it went down, but I really respected them. Um, when they told me that they felt like when I came home ba or back to the team, which I, you know, obviously travel so much that it feels like home. When I came back to the team after a break, they just pointed out that I was a much better coach, better person, um, as a way of saying that as time goes on throughout the winter, um, I personally lose my quality that, that what might start as a good coaching product product in late November, it starts to erode. It has a half-life to it. And uh, to acknowledge that is, has been important for me. And so uh, because I know that's something I need, it's binary. I have to take it. Um, and that way I don't feel guilty when I go home for a week in the winter and take a, a break away from the team. And I, I, I don't like missing out. I love being on the road from start to finish, but I don't think anybody can do it and maintain that, high quality product of whatever it is they do, wax tech or coach or, or athlete. So, um, and that's a little bit, Rachel, what I'm doing right now. I'm on a road trip around the Pacific Northwest currently 
Um, future points to be determined. I just have to be on a plane on November 17th and see as many athletes along the way as I can. But uh, a lot of this is about making sure I'm shoring up my own mental health, which I will say is pretty damn good right now. Uh, one more for you. I, I think this is going to be your fourth Olympic season, right? Your first was, uh, first time coaching at the Olympics was Vancouver, I believe. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Had to count. Yeah. I started in 2006 <laughs> right after the Torino games. Okay. Yep. Um, so what would you go back and tell Matt Whitcom of 2010? Oh boy. <laughs> Start resting before I need it. Um, you know, I think maintain maintaining um, your professional life and keeping it separate from your free time um, is huge. It's something I think I've generally done pretty well, but um, essentially that's a long way of saying take a little more rest early in my 20s. That would have been helpful. Um have a little more patience with staff. Uh, I think we've lost some incredible staff members along the way um, because mm, they didn't seem to fit into the direction that the team was, was necessarily headed. Um, and I think I am doing a better job these days, as is our entire staff, of giving more feedback to one another and receiving more feedback from both athletes and staff so that if I am ever removed from my position, um, it will not be a surprise. And so I think um, in short, it's our responsibility as co-workers to make sure that not just each of us individually is doing our jobs, but to make sure that we all are seeing ourselves as teammates and are working together to be successful in whatever our role is as tech or a development coach or a head coach or a director. Um, I think that would, that would be something. Uh, before we wrap up, um, you wanted to talk a little bit about the NNF fundraiser. Yes, thank you for asking that. Um, I am on the board for NNF with seven other members. Um, excitingly, one of them is Keegan Randall, um, Sophie Caldwell, Chad Salmula, and and uh, and just a just a group of amazing people. It's uh, it's led by Yuri Gusev. Um, Edfinity, Joey Ketternicio, Reese Brown, and I feel like I'm missing one right now. Uh, that'll be a bummer if I did. Uh, but anyways, we are, it's a volunteer board and we are heading into our grassroots fundraising campaign called the Drive for 25. Um, we're coming off of one of our worst ever fundraising years, um, largely due to the pandemic. I think people were just uh, being a little bit tighter with their money. And I think we were being a little less effective with our fundraising. Um, the world was, was different, but we've really doubled down this year and, and the pre-drive for 25 fundraising has been going great. 
Um, and our our goal that we've set for for our drive is to have a thousand individual donations of twenty five dollars or more. And uh, we're coming off of a year where we had about four hundred and sixty. And so um, we want to be transparent with the loftiness of the goal that we're setting. Um, and I want to be clear that uh, this board can't do it by ourselves. We can't do it simply by asking um, our family and friends to be those donors. We really need full community, that that concept of you, the U.S. skiing community, to stand up and help us get those individual donations. And um, for me, you know, the, the money is an exciting thing, of course. We need funding for our development programs. That's what national the National Nordic Foundation does. We drop a ladder down from the bottom unfunded edge of the national team so that more people can climb and have longer careers. So, uh, but what's I think most exciting to me is the idea that we might be able to get a thousand people to stand up and, and essentially buy a share of this U.S. skiing concept. And so if we can blow through that goal of 1000, then I, then I would love to do that. And I think if, uh, um, anybody that's even remotely involved in skiing does it, it will be a piece. So this is basically me saying, uh, we need some help and, and hope you'll join us. The drive starts November 22nd and will end quickly on November 26th. It's going to be a succinct drive. Um, this season we'll be reaching out with a mailer here to a few thousand people in the next, uh, about a week before the drive, as well as a bunch of email communications. And uh, I hope when people get those, um, they'll appreciate the impact that they can have if they participate. We really need you. So uh, on the behalf of the board of NNF, thanks uh, for anybody that is getting stoked for this, because I'm, pr I'm pretty fired up. Great. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wanted to get to in this call? Um, yeah, um, I would just, uh, like to emphasize that, uh, you know, to those fans of ours out there that, um, are, are so incredible. They, they, they do anything from send us cookies, uh, via 15 different messengers to get from Anchorage to Davos, or they, uh, put beer money in my Venmo account. Or um, they simply give me a phone call or an email after we've had a rough day. Um, I'd like to say thank you for, for all of that incredible support. And to, to also say this, that um, when you watch us on whatever streaming platform you can get access to, on uh, maybe NBC Peacock, um, whether we are winning the race or getting our butts absolutely kicked um we're doing it cleanly um it's uh it's the result of hard work and of doing our best and so that whole concept of competing cleanly is perhaps the most important thing next to mental health that uh, that defines what coaching is and and i think for any coach out there or um athletes that are listening to this podcast um have that discussion on your team you know, if uh, it's it's never too soon or too early to be discussing the concept of competing ethically, um, because I really hate dopers. 
And uh, I think uh, we can't say that America has a uniquely clean um, culture uh, with regards to sports. What you can say is we have a uniquely clean culture in cross-country skiing right now. And uh, that's something that if we don't maintain, if we don't put some work into it, we could lose that because uh, we are the same species as those who have cheated us in the past. And so uh, it's not something I take for granted. It's something we, uh, as the national team coaches and athletes, put a lot of work and discussion into. And and we could also use uh, some backing at the club level. So start the conversations early. And thanks so much for choosing to compete cleanly. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll be following along over the next few months. Rachel, thanks for uh, thoughtful questions. And thanks to anybody that uh, decided to click on this and give it a listen. We are uh, hugely grateful for all fans and supporters.